The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. What a wonderful morning already. Great time of worship, great prayers, and now we get the, the privilege of opening God's Word together. So go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, Galatians 6. We're going to be taking a look at Galatians 6, 1 through 5 uh, together this morning. As you're going there, just a, a quick recap of the past couple of weeks. We've worked our way through Galatians 5. We've touched on justification and sanctification. We talked about our freedom in Christ. We talked about the war that is within us. There is a war between the flesh and the spirit. Today, I want us to take a look at the beginning of Galatians 6. As we get into some of the application of this, how does this thinking apply when talking about how we interact with each other in the church? If you've not done so already, I encourage you to grab a copy of the scripture at the table behind you if you don't have one so that you can see these words before you. Please stand if you are able uh, for the reading of God's word. Galatians 6, 1 through 5, God's word says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now that we are in chapter 6, we are reminded that Christians that the Christian walk is not just an individualistic walk. It's not just between us and the Lord, but that we are are in community. And we come alongside one another. And this coming alongside is actually mutually beneficial. We likely all know those who profess to be Christian, but want nothing to do with the church. Those that claim to be spiritual, but not religious They will say that they believe in God, but they just can't be bothered with the people of God. Yet, even though you are at church, many of us, you and me, we still struggle at times with trying to go through life on our own. You don't always see yourself as part of a body of believers. Or there is a mindset that this body is here to to serve you to meet your needs. We can fall into this trap of thinking that this body of believers is solely here to serve me, to encourage me, to build me up. Then if at some point you stop feeling served, you stop feeling encouraged, and you stop feeling built up, well, now it's time to go find a new body of believers to do that. You know, we can fall into this trap of thinking that our role is to be served and not to serve. 
At the beginning of Galatians 6, Paul touches on our responsibility to one another. To do this, he, he plucks some of the spiritual fruit and begins to share it. In these verses, he teaches that the responsibility of a Christian is to kind of one another each other. Paul is saying that as Christians, not just the leaders of the church, but the whole body are to restore one another from sin, bear one another's burdens, consider others more important, and share with one another. Let's start by taking a look at verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So restoring one another. As we've already discussed, that there is a war between the flesh and the spirit, and sometimes we still sin. When we discussed the fruit of the spirit last week, it's important to remember that the Holy Spirit does not produce the fruit of the spirit in us for our own personal enjoyment. We are to use that fruit within the context of our everyday lives. When we're at work, when we are at home, when we are interacting with one another. So the the first responsibility that Paul mentions in our text is to restore one another or pick one another up. To not let each other sink or drown in our own sin alone. Notice that verse 1 starts by saying, brothers. So we know that from the start, he's talking about Christians. He's talking about those in the church. He's talking to Christians and then talks about one another. So to Christians and how we are to be towards other Christians. The phrase caught in any transgression. This does not only refer to deliberate habitual sin. It might also be an unexpected sin. Something a Christian does almost against his or her better judgment. Remember, if we're talking about other Christians, we expect that there is to be a war. So we expect that there is a struggle and sometimes we're going to fail. This is not an excuse to fail, but it does factor into how we approach other believers. So now that we know of the sin, what should be done? Well, we restore him. The word that Paul uses here is a term for healing that means to return to its former condition. It's used in medicine, for example, to describe the setting of a broken bone, like being put back in order, back to its previous state. When Christians are caught in sin, they don't need isolation. They need restoration. The proper thing to do is to help them confess their sins and find forgiveness in Christ. The isolation in our American culture sometimes makes it difficult to do this because we don't get close enough to people to see the way that they live. In other cultures in the world, they all live together and everything is is in the open. There's much that can be hidden today in our individualistic culture. Now, at this point, I want to pause as I think it's important for us to talk about the topic of forgiveness for a little bit. The idea of restoring a fellow believer implies an element of forgiveness. There is the element of God's forgiveness as well as the potential forgiveness between believers. We encourage them to ask, seek, and ask God for forgiveness. And we recognize that they may also need to seek and ask for forgiveness from one another. 
Forgiveness is an important aspect of what we've been talking about over the past few weeks. So I don't want to just blow past it here. But forgiveness can be a tricky thing. Sometimes an offense is minor. We overlook. But sometimes the wounds are deep. And they still hurt, sometimes even years later. Think of a scenario where you were wronged against. How did you respond? Each scenario you might have thought about presents the need and opportunity to practice forgiveness. But so often in these situations, we choose to to get even or pretend to push the hurt or frustration down until it gives birth to bitterness. When we don't take the opportunity to forgive or ask for forgiveness, the relationship between one another suffers. Forgiveness is one of the most poorly practiced activities in Christian community, if it's even practiced at all. Yet the Bible talks about practicing forgiveness as though it were a daily thing. C.S. Lewis sums it up well when he says, to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How, how can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exceptions, and God means what he says. The Lord's Prayer commands us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Right after, it instructs us to pray for daily bread. Practicing forgiveness is something we must do daily in the same way we ask for daily provisions of food. It's a part of everyday life, not something that is only reserved for life's big sins and events. Why don't we forgive? Why isn't forgiveness practiced more in churches, in families, or in our other relationships? In Matthew 18, 21 to 35... I will read it, but you can feel free to turn there in your Bibles if you'd like. Jesus tells the following parable. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. 
Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. With his fellow, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The metaphor of debt cancellation clearly defines the nature of forgiveness. Sometimes some of the weight of this parable is lost, though, when when people talk about the amount of the two debts. The amount that the servant owed the king was an enormous amount. In approximate modern terms, if a laborer earns $15 an hour at 2,000 hours a year, he would earn $30,000 per year. And a talent would then equal $600,000. Hence, 10,000 talents, as described in our text, hyperbolically represents an incalculable debt. In today's terms, about $6 billion. The point being that it is an amount that is so large, it almost doesn't even feel real. It's beyond what we can even fathom. What the other servant owed him was still a large amount. It's not nothing, not something that you'd be carrying around in your pocket. It was equivalent to about 20 weeks of common labor or about $12,000 in today's terms. But compared to the debt that the wicked servant himself owed, $6 billion, it was a relatively small amount. When we forgive, we should stop and consider our own forgiveness. The amount that we, are, that we are forgiven is beyond comprehension, in part because sometimes we only measure our known sins or our outward sins. We tend to ignore the sins that are, that are in our hearts. So we focus on the sins that we can wrap our minds around more easily. When you forgive someone, you cancel a debt. But more specifically, you make a conscious choice to absorb the cost yourself. You choose not to make the offender pay for the offense. I appreciate the way that that Tim Lane and Paul Tripp talk about this in their book, Relationships. They say, "By, by forfeiting your right to collect, you make at least three promises. You promise that you will not bring up the debt to use it as leverage. When you forgive, you are saying that you will not make the offender pay by reminding him of what he has done in an effort to control him. This does not mean that you can't discuss it and seek to deal with the offense in a redemptive way. Another promise you make, as they say it, you promise that you will not bring up the offense to others and slander the person who sinned against you. This does not mean that you cannot seek the advice and counsel of others as you work through the issue, But it does mean that you will not slander the person under the guise of getting outside counsel. You will not gossip about what the person has done to you. Finally, you promise not to dwell on the offense yourself. 
One of the biggest challenges when someone sins against you is to not replay the offense over and over again in your own mind. When you fail to forgive someone, you break these three promises. Rather than canceling the debt, you keep the person's indebtedness before him and before others and before yourself. Your desire to make the person pay for what he has done outweighs your desire to forgive. Forgiveness is costly, but not forgiving is even more costly. When we refuse to forgive, we oftentimes end up gossiping about the person. We try to get others on our side, so we share what they did and how they, how they wronged us. You hold a grudge. In an effort to make them pay, you actually allow bitterness to grow inside of you. Our call to forgive others is in part for our own benefit and protection. This is part of the war that we discussed last week. We forgive others as a way to pursue the fruit of the Spirit and wage war against the flesh, against those parts of us that that wants fits of anger, that wants revenge, that wants the person to suffer, at least as much, if not more, than we suffered. Forgiveness is not because you are better than the other person. But we forgive recognizing our own forgiveness and recognizing what not forgiving can do to our soul. We forgive in part to guard against our own sin. Notice what the unmerciful servant does after he refuses to cancel the other servant's debt. He began to choke him or seized him by the throat, as it says in some translations. When he is before the king, he was the victim of his own negligence. But his unwarranted bitterness and anger turned him into a victimizer. Do you see how easily this happens? It feels so natural to make someone pay. A sense of justice quickly goes into overdrive and turns into revenge. Now, you may not choke anyone, at least I hope not. But you may shut someone out of your life. You may become harsh towards them. You may try to destroy their reputation. Bitterness gets its foot in the door, and eventually, if the situation is not addressed and forgiveness is not granted, it takes over your life. That's why it's so important to practice forgiveness on a daily basis. When an offense is committed against you, you forgive. If you don't start with the little skirmishes, you'll begin to lose the battles, which will eventually cost you the war. And we also have to understand that forgiveness is not just a one-time event, but it's also an ongoing process. When Peter asks Jesus how many times should, should he forgive someone, he thinks he's being rather noble by suggesting seven times. But Jesus rebukes him. He says that forgiveness has no limits. There's no way around Jesus' words. And no use trying to soften the implications. The principle applies to countless offenses and even the same endlessly repeated offense. We're tempted to think that once we've forgiven someone, we're done. But forgiving someone is not just a past event. 
It's something that we must continue to practice even when we are dealing with an offense that we've already forgiven. Even if I have forgiven you for something that you have done in the past, I need to be careful that I don't slip into bitterness sometime in the future. I need to keep practicing forgiveness every time I see you and every time I think of you. Now, why is the process of forgiveness so important? Because even if you have forgiven someone for an offense, you'll be tempted to think about it the next time you see them or you see her. The next time you, you see them, that you, you'll think of that other sin. Now they're going to stack one on top of the other. Without realizing it, you pile these on, and then it makes it even harder to, to forgive. Now, in saying this, I think it's help, helpful to point out that forgiveness is not necessarily forgetting. Too often people say that the evidence of having truly forgiven someone is to forget what he has done to you. The passage that's often quoted is Jeremiah 31, 34, where God says, For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This verse, some say, is, is how we should forgive. But I think that there are at least two problems with this understanding of forgiveness. First, it's not realistic. Our minds don't function this way, and our ability to remember is powerful. Completely erasing an offense from your memory is not realistic. Second, it's not biblical. The passage in Jeremiah does not say that God has amnesia when he looks at you. Our omniscient God does not forget anything. The word remember is not a memory word, but a promise word. It's a covenant word. God is promising that when we confess our sins, I will not treat you as your sins deserve. Instead, I will forgive you. This is why forgiveness is both a past event and an ongoing process into the future. It's a past promise to keep in the future. When this is done, the memory of small offenses usually dissipates. Larger offenses probably will not. It's important to remember that it's both a past event as well as an ongoing process. Otherwise, we run the risk of heading off in one of two wrong directions. You'll be plagued with doubts about whether or not you have forgiven someone because you think that forgiving equals forgetting. Or you'll give in to bitterness without even realizing, realizing it because you think that since you have forgiven someone in the past, you're allowed to hold on to the reminder of hurt in the present. Neither reflects the way that God has forgiven us. In addition to this parable, the Bible is full of calls to forgive. And there are two that at first glance, they almost seem contradictory. Mark 11.25 and Luke 17.3. Mark 11.25 says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may, may forgive you your trespasses. Then Luke 17.3 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. So Mark eleven twenty five seems to say that we are to forgive someone no matter what. While Luke 17, 3 seems to say that you only forgive someone if he repents. Well, which one of these verses is right? Well, they're both right. The verses are talking about two different aspects of forgiveness. 
Mark 11.25 is talking about forgiveness as a heart attitude before God. Notice that it says whenever you stand praying, the context is worship. When I consider someone's sin, as I stand before the Lord, I am called to have an attitude of forgiveness towards the person who sinned against me. This is non-negotiable. I do not have the right to withhold forgiveness and harbor bitterness in my heart. Luke 17.3, on the other hand, is talking about forgiveness as a horizontal transaction between me and the offender. This is often referred to as reconciliation. The point Luke 17.3 makes is that while I am to have an attitude of forgiveness before the Lord, I can only grant forgiveness to another person if he repents and admits that he has sinned against me. To restore a relationship, there needs to be this other aspect of forgiveness. Even if he never does this, I am called to maintain an attitude of forgiveness towards the offender. I don't get to let bitterness grow in me. The vertical aspect of forgiveness is unconditional, but the horizontal aspect depends upon the offender admitting guilt and asking for forgiveness. And to be clear, there is a difference between an apology and asking for forgiveness. An apology is appropriate when you have done something by accident. For example, if I accidentally spill a cup of coffee on you, I should say, I'm sorry that I did that and do whatever I can to help you clean it up. But if I purposely threw the coffee on you because I was irritated, that's not an accident. That's a sin. I may apologize and say, I'm sorry, but I also need to name the sin, confess that it was wrong, and ask for forgiveness. Apologies are easier. Asking for forgiveness is hard. There's more humility needed to ask for forgiveness. It's like the the Hollywood version that we so often see. I'm sorry if you were offended by what I did or by what I said. That's not really even an apology. But more than that, it's certainly not asking for forgiveness. And one key aspect to this topic, though, is this. We must give the other person an opportunity to ask for forgiveness. There have been times when someone will share with me that they are struggling with this particular person. They wronged them years ago, and no matter how much they try, they just, they just can't get past it. The person has never even asked for forgiveness. But the offending party is unaware that there is even an issue that there is forgiveness that needs to be sought. If we have not confronted the person with the issue, thus not given them an opportunity to even ask for forgiveness, then we have not fulfilled our part. It can be easy to say, well, you know, if they really cared, they'd know. But don't underestimate our ability to be unaware. I know that I have made a joke or a comment and didn't even think about it and may not even remember exactly what it was that I said. Until later on, someone comes to me to share that they were hurt by what I said. I had no idea, and I was devastated to know that some comment that I made had hurt someone. But it's also important to remember that not all sins or all offenses require this. It might be nice, but depending on the relationship, depending on the offense, sometimes, oftentimes, it's best to just overlook Overlooking is forgiveness, though we have to be careful to not let it turn into ignoring. 
In overlooking, we recognize that, that we're all sinners and overlook. We say, I forgive you and I move on. When we can't, we can't seem to, to let it go. The hurt was too much. It was too deep. It was too painful. Well, then we, we go to one another. Maybe it's a situation where we see a pattern of sin as opposed to just a one-off situation. And those, we go to one another. Forgiveness is hard, but necessary in our Christian life with one another. So with that, let's go back to our passage in Galatians and look at verse 1 again. Brothers, if any is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We are to restore a spirit of gentleness. This is a fruit of the Spirit. So the reason that the spiritual should restore is that it takes the fruit of the Spirit to do it. It takes the Holy Spirit to truly forgive, to restore in this way. And verse 2 says, bear one another's burden. So applying the previous five chapters of Galatians includes restoring a brother or sister in a spirit of gentleness. But we also have this call in our passage that's less like setting a broken bone, and this one's more like carrying the stretcher. It's the work of bearing someone else's burdens. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This verse implies that Christians will have burdens, and heavy ones at that. Being caught in sin from time to time is one burden, but there are many others. Sorrow, worry, doubt, failure, poverty, loneliness, illness, divorce, disability, loss, depression, Not only do we face such hardships, but sometimes our burdens are so heavy that they must be shared if they are to be carried at all. There is a sense, of course, that God carries our burdens for us. Our biggest burden of all, the infinite burden of our sin and guilt, is a burden that only God could beat. Like we talked about when we looked at the passage in Matthew, if God had already carried our greatest burden has already filled our greatest need on the cross, then surely he can handle our our lighter loads as well. The fact that God carries our burdens, however, does not mean that he is the only one with whom we should share them. Often the way God lightens our load is by getting other Christians to do some of the carrying. If we are discouraged in the Christian life, It may be because we are trying to carry too much of the weight all by ourselves. God has given us one another. Every believer is called to be one of God's bellhops, always ready to pick up someone else's baggage. This means that we don't need to keep all of our troubles to ourselves. Indeed, not just that we don't need to, but that we should not. When Christians bear one another's burdens, they are fulfilling the law, Paul wrote. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This would be a surprising verse if Paul had not already touched on this. After spending most of the letter talking about justification and how it comes by faith in Christ and not by works, 
Remember what he said in chapter 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We are called to keep the law of love, even though our salvation does not depend on it. Though we are not under the law, nevertheless, we aim to keep the law. One way to fulfill the law of love is to bear one another's burdens by caring for one another. Love our neighbors as ourself, bearing one another's burdens, just as Christ showed his love for us when he bore the burden of our sin on the cross. So this seems to be implying, or at least recognizing, that this is going to be much easier if we have relationships with one another. We need to know one another. That's how we can best know what each other's burdens are. So this means that we are not always content with just knowing the people in our immediate family or our close friends. Yes, they are included in this. We are to bear their burdens too, but it's not limited to them. It is not only them. This is your church. These are the people that God has placed before you to care for. Do you know the people in this body? Do you know their burdens? If the answer is no, then this is a call to build those relationships. Get to know people. Sometimes that might even mean laying your burdens aside to step in and help someone that you don't know very well or even at all. Or if you are helping them work through an issue of sin, it might mean that you are getting together with them on a regular basis, talking on the phone as a way to check in. I don't know if people still talk on the phone these days, but I think it's a good thing. Maybe it's just being there, being a mentor to them to help them navigate. Maybe the burdens are not all sin, but practical. Maybe helping with some practical needs helps them in the war with other sins. You saying, here, let me get that. Let me, let me help you carry this load so that you can, you can get some rest or not feel all the weight or the stress by yourself. You saying that then gives them what they need to battle other sins. The fight, to fight a sense of a self-pity that says nobody cares about me. But we have to know this. We have to get out of our own comfort zones and, and get to know people. Sometimes that means that you're building this relationship with somebody that the only thing you have in common is Jesus. They might disagree with you on politics. They might live a different lifestyle. Or heaven forbid, they might be Oregon Duck fans. I know. What does it look like to bear one another's burdens to love in deed and in truth, as it says in 1 John 3.18? When you wonder if someone could use a ride home from church, you offer to take them. When you wonder how someone is doing, you call them. When you think that what a financial burden that car repair must have been for your neighbor and you can help to do a little bit to ease the pain, you write them a check. When you wonder if someone else will help, you remind yourself that you are that someone you help. Possible scenarios that call us to bear one another's burdens are endless. The point is that love is not content with feelings. It presses through to action. We are to consider others 
more important. The only way to love our neighbor as ourselves is to recognize that our neighbor is at least as valuable in the sight of God as we are. This brings us to the third call we have in this passage. We are to consider others more important than ourselves. Look at our passage beginning with verse 3. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. The way we treat others depends in large part on what we think of ourselves. People who have a rather high opinion of themselves are generally unwilling to carry someone else's burdens. They are too self-centered to be self-giving. They think serving others is beneath them. Often the only way to manage someone else's burdens is by putting down our own burdens for a while. To carry someone's burdens, we have to view them as more important and worth setting our needs, our schedule, our burdens to the side to care for them. And let's be honest. Many of us don't have enough flex in our schedules to do this. We are so busy that if an urgent need arises, we don't have the time or the capacity to step in to help. Our schedule or our commitments are way too important. Pastor Brian will often mention how preaching a sermon can be hard because the text can be convicting and being the one to say these things is convicting. So I don't stand up here as though I've got this figured out. I stand here saying this is what the text says. So we need to consider if we're taking scripture with the, serious, with the level of seriousness that we should. The way to avoid thinking that we are something when we are not is to see ourselves the way that God sees us. This is what our text means when it says, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. There is a way to be concerned for others without comparing ourselves to someone else. When we compare ourselves to others, we either get discouraged because we're less spiritual than someone else, or we become proud because we are more spiritual, especially when we compare to someone caught in sin. Instead of comparing ourselves to others, we should test ourselves against God's standards. So he's saying, if you think you're something when you're nothing, in other words, if you don't want to bother to get involved at a proper level because you're too good for that, well, you are very deceived. And you better go back, verse 4 says. You better examine your own work. And then you may have to have a just cause for boasting in regard to himself alone. He says, and not in, in regard to one another. You better not assume anything that isn't really true. Your first responsibility is to examine your own life. Be sure your own attitudes are right. Be sure you have a humble, meek spirit and that you have a reason to boast and in the good sense because of what God has done in your life. And then you're going to go humbly. You're not going to think you're something when you're nothing. You're going to know know, knowing that you're nothing. But God can use you to do some things, and you're going to follow through in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul then adds a rather curious comment in verse 5. For each will have to bear his own load. At first, this might seem like a contradiction. Verse 2 told us to bear one another's burdens. Then verse 5 commands us to carry our own load. So which is it? Should we share our burdens or keep them to ourselves? These two verses are not contradictory. They are complementary. What they mean is that mutual accountability must be balanced by a sense of personal responsibility. We lose this in our modern translations, but these are different words here in our text. The word used in verse 2 refers to a heavy load, like cargo being loaded onto a freighter. This word in verse 2 is used to describe a weight that must be shared because it is too heavy for one person to carry. Verse 5, the word refers to a man's traveling pack, almost like a backpack. When the scripture says that everyone must carry his own weight, it has the lighter burden in mind. There is a weight that every person must carry. The weight of our own personal responsibility before God. God has given you a unique set of gifts for your situation in life. You will not have to answer for what you might have done with someone else's gifts. But you, and you alone, will have to answer for the way you carry the responsibilities that God has given to you. So we are to use the fruit of the Spirit to come alongside each other. That may mean confronting sin. That may mean caring for one another. To be clear, the responsibility is not solely on the one coming alongside. We need to be willing to let others come alongside. We need to be willing to share our struggles and and burdens. You know, sometimes I'll hear people be discouraged because nobody seems to care. Nobody has come alongside them when they are struggling. But they've also never shared that they're struggling. It's both. We need to have our eyes open to the needs of others and... We need to be willing to share our own struggles with others. We are not alone in our Christian walk. We have freedom in Christ. We have the spirit to be at war with our flesh. And we have one another to help and to be helped by in this life. You are not alone. You have been adopted into a family. God is perfect. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit perfect the rest of the family all of us not yet perfect yet this is who god has sovereignly brought into your life to love and to serve to in love this is what we aim to do let's pray father god you are good You are just, you are gracious, you are holy. We could go on and on listing your amazing attributes. We are so thankful for you and for what you have done in our lives, what you have done in our hearts to cause us to be here today to worship you. You showed your love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are overwhelmed by your mercy though often not as much as we should be. And yet you show us grace even in that. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the the strength and the mercies that you provide new every morning to give us 
what we will need for that day. Thank you for your grace and forgiveness that forgives us when we are very undeserving of your forgiveness and grace. Thank you for your faithfulness when we are stubborn and pridefully trying to do things on our own and we struggle to submit to you. Lord, on this day, this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we recognize you as the giver of all life, that all people were created in your image to reflect your glory. We mourn the lives lost to abortion. We pray for true repentance of all those involved. We pray that you would increase our empathy, compassion, and love for our neighbors, no matter their age, race, ability, background, or need. Help us to love our neighbors as ourselves, that we would be quick to recognize need and come alongside and help. Maybe that means coming alongside and praying for these pregnant women considering abortion. Maybe that means a greater willingness to consider adoption. Maybe that means financial support. Help us to respond in the way that you put on our hearts to respond. Lord God, we are thankful for salvation that you chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before you. In love, you predestined us for adoption to the purpose of your will, to the praise of your glorious grace. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name that we pray. Amen.